This is episode 156 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Brian Kernahan on Dennis Ritchie, Unix, C, and Legacy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. All right, today is Computer Scientist Day on the podcast. I'm really thrilled to be able to do this podcast. I'm going to start actually by introducing our guest just by name because so many of you will know him just by name. Brian Kernahan is with us. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. Uh, He's actually with us today to talk about Dennis Ritchie and his legacy, but I'll start by introducing Brian. And Brian, if I get something wrong here, please just pipe in and correct me because I'm definitely a novice when it comes to these topics. Uh, Brian is a Canadian computer scientist who was uh, at least present during the development of the Unix operating systems. And then he has said modestly that he contributed some useful application software. Uh, so Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie are also known for their contributions to Unix. And we'll be talking about Dennis Ritchie mostly today. Uh, but Brian is known for his authorship of the first book on the C programming language, along with Dennis. He's also co-authored the book, The Go Programming Language. And Brian, I just have to tell you that I have a number of your books spread out on the floor next to me here. I, and I realize now, looking at these books, that uh, we've been, my husband's a, a software engineer, and so we've been moving these books around with us uh, for decades. Uh, So it's quite a thrill for me to be able to talk to you in person. Uh, Brian's been a professor at Princeton since year 2000, and he's also the director of the undergraduate studies in computer science there. So I'm really honored to have him on the program because I know he'll be able to explain these issues to us in an understandable way. Here's just a little bit of background about Dennis, so the listeners can kind of place him in their minds. His father, I didn't realize this, but his father was Alastair Ritchie, who worked at Bell Labs, as did Dennis. Uh, Dennis graduated from Harvard with degrees in physics and did doctoral work in applied mathematics, uh, also at Harvard. He was part of the AT&T Bell Labs group in the 60s and is known for creating C and for, obviously, his work on Unix. He's very well known in the computing world and won many awards, including the Turing Award and the National Medal of Technology, along with Ken Thompson. And the citation for their work is, quote, that it led to enormous advances in computer hardware, software, and networking systems and stimulated growth of an entire industry, thereby enhancing American leadership in the information age. So quite a citation there. So, Brian, to kick us off here, can you take us back in time to the Bell Labs? How did you meet Dennis and what was it like to work with him? 
Yeah, sure. So I don't have specific memories of, because <laughs> it was a long time ago, but I spent uh, two summers at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, uh, as an intern in 67 and 68. And then I went there permanently right at the beginning of 1969 when I finished my degree at Princeton. Um, and so I don't remember specifically when or how Dennis and I met because I think he was involved, whether permanently or not, at Bell Labs at roughly that time around 67, 68, and certainly 69. But we were in the same department, a department that only had six people in it, and uh, we probably had offices on the same corridor, or at least very nearby. So the specifics are certainly lost in that sense. The, the computing science research group at that point, there were three or four departments, each relatively small, so the total was probably 25 people, and that made it really easy to run into people all the time. And it was especially true when people were working on Unix in the early days, because the machine itself that it ran on was in a room that was set up for a number of people to hang out and work there. And sometimes it was even required to do that. Uh, more likely, uh, it was kind of encouraged just because it was helpful to be in the same room as other people, sort of a collegial group. Uh huh. So I think working with Dennis, not entirely the right way to phrase it in some sense, because he and I did different things. But for sure, when we were working on the C book together. And that was basically in 1977, I guess. Um, I had written a tutorial introduction to how to use C. It was a new language to me. I've learned at least, <laughs> I think I learned how to use it. And so I decided that I would try and write down what I had done, how I learned it. Mm -hmm. And that tutorial was used inside Bell Labs for a while. I probably got comments from Dennis on it, but I really don't remember at this point. And at some point, probably very early in 1977 or late 76, I decided, gee, wouldn't it be a great idea to write a book about C? It looks like it's useful language and so on. And I talked Dennis into writing it with me. I think, I think he was initially reluctant, but I twisted his arm. Uh -huh. And it worked out rather well. And certainly it was the luckiest thing that I ever did personally. The process of writing, I wrote much of the sort of tutorial material in the book. Uh, the reference manual is entirely Dennis's work. I had nothing to do with that. And he wrote at least one other chapter. And then we went over it and kind of homogenized the style. And at this point, I don't know that you could tell who wrote what words originally for the most part. Um, he was an exceptionally good writer, uh, really, really very clear writer, uh, precise, um, and with a dry sort of wit that was characteristic of him as a person. It showed up in his writing as well as his conversation. And then much later on, and I don't remember the dates for sure, uh, we were both department heads, which was sort of the first level of management in Bell Labs research. People didn't really want to go into management because it was kind of a pain. <laughs> but he and I both did that. Uh, he resisted it much longer than I did. So I don't remember the exact dates for that. But he was really good at that as well. He was technically expert in everything, obviously, but he also had really sound judgment and he was just good with people. So it all worked out really very well. I'm going to uh, jump around here. I was going to ask this question later, uh, but since I do have all these books spread out around me, including the second edition of the C programming language, so it must date fairly far back there. You know, I was really struck by all the writing that you've done 
And of course, yesterday I spent a lot of the day reading uh, the fairly new book, Unix, A History and a Memoir, which I just loved. It's really a great little piece of work, funny and informative. And I was thinking about writing and about communication, about things like programming languages, and, th- and wondering how much you attribute the success of some of the systems and languages that you've worked on to communication, to the ability to explain why these things are useful and what's important about them. Do you think that's true or or how much do you think that matters? I I think it actually does matter. I I wouldn't care to quantify it in some Mm -hmm. sense, but I think that having material that makes it clearer what's going on and how to make effective use of these systems was probably important at a lot of junctures along the way. So for right from the very beginning, uh, Unix had really, really excellent manuals. The, the first edition of the first Unix manual came out only probably six months after the system itself was working. And a lot of the content of those manuals was written by Dennis and Ken Thompson and by Doug McElroy, as sort of one of these unsung heroes of the whole thing. Mm. So I think that the, the documentation for the programmers in that sense was very, very helpful. If you compare it to documentation today, uh, I think documentation for many systems that I try to use today is voluminous, but not very helpful. Uh-huh. And it takes work to get the right balance of, I'm think, thinking of programming uh, here particularly, it's hard to get the right balance of good examples, examples that sort of lead you through what you might want to do as a working programmer that are realistic, Mm -hmm. come in the right sequence that have the relevant detail when it's needed, but not too early and not too late. And then of course, complemented by careful reference material. And I think that today things are big enough and complicated enough that we have kind of technology band-aids like pop-ups and auto-completion and so on. And those help but they're not much better than what's underneath. And a lot of that stuff feels very much like it's generated by machine, not with any real human insight. Uh So that's all the manual stuff. And then I think the books probably help as well. There's sort of the distillation of all of that kind of thing in a form that is one hopes longer lived and, uh, perhaps more portable in some sense. Certainly in the old days, it wasn't having a book was vastly more portable because your computers weren't portable. Uh, right. <laughs> so, so I think I think the writing is actually relevant. No, it's self-serving, of course, because mostly what I've been doing is writing. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Uh-huh, right. Well, I, like I say, I was struck by it. And also you talk in the book, uh, Unix, A History and a Memoir, about paying attention to the quality of the writing and about trying to use uh, White and Strunk's element of style, that approach to writing to make it simple and concise, but also careful. You've also used a really interesting word in a number of places, both in the book and I think in some other things that I read, where you talk about taste. And, and I thought that was also interesting in light of all this kind of writing. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by taste? <laughs> There's a Latin phrase that about Christopher's non disputandum est or something like that. But, but if you talk about taste, programmers, I, I think not all would appreciate it, but certainly experienced programmers will tell you, yes, that there is a sense in which 
writing about something or the design of a program or its implementation shows good taste, which might also mean good judgment or is technically very elegant or neat in some interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's an attempt to capture all of that as a kind of a metaphor from other things where you think something is tastefully done, you know, like the decor that goes into a house or uh, who knows what else. I, I can't speak to clothing because I have no taste in clothing. <laughs> but, but that's, it's an idea. And I think that you will, programmers talk about that a fair amount. When Bill Potter and I, there's another person who was at the labs about that time, when we were working on the book, uh, The Elements of Programming Style, which we stole the model exactly from Strunk and White. Which you just oh, right. Because Strunk and White is the elements of style, and it's a very, very nice compact book on how to write code. i sorry, how to write English. And then so what we did, Bill and I did, was the same thing for programming. And I think it was part of the culture in and around the that early days of Unix that everybody thought, in some sense, doing things really well, tastefully, was quite important. And it showed up in the code itself, which was very, very well written. And it showed up, I think, in a lot of the, the ancillary things like documentation. Yeah, it seems to go along in my mind, at least with the idea of elegance, but also being streamlined. And I just have to comment here before we move on, this idea of the pop-ups and so forth. It It is very frustrating as a user to click on something, you know, like they'll give you the little circle with the eye in there and you think, oh, information, yay. And then you click on it. And as you say, it it's it's like it was generated by a machine. It was like if you knew enough to click on this thing, you already know this. So, yeah, it, it is. There's been a gap that's opened up, I think, between the kind of writing that was done back then and how we attempt to communicate to people today about what it is that you're doing. I don't have an answer to it, but I'm just expressing my frustration. <laughs> frustration, I understand, yes. So Unix, the name Unix grew out of Multics, as I understand this. Uh, and Dennis allegedly called that a treacherous pun. And why was that name appropriate? Well, well you mentioned the, the book, the Unix recently. Um, and in there, there's a brief section on uh, where the name uh, Unix came from. And there are two protagonists. One is me and the other is Peter Neumann. And my memory, and this is all prefaced by saying Peter has a somewhat different memory, and so who knows, but my memory is that in some sense, Multics uh, was many of everything. It was it was a wonderful example of what's called the second system effect, where you remedy all the de- defects of your first system when you build the second thing, and you try to throw in everything that you've had a bright idea about or that you think you didn't do well the first time. And so Multics was many of everything. Uh-huh. And that was the multi-part for me. And then Unix was very much simpler and smaller and had the advantage of coming later. And so it was at most one of anything. And so that, in my mind, became Unix, but spelled U-N-I-C-S as a direct parallel to Multics. And somewhere that mutated into Unix with an I-X on the end. Fine. So that's my belief of it. The treacherous pun that uh, Dennis mentioned is that there's a, a homonym to Unix in English, and that is Unix, E-U-N-U-C-S. And in fact, at some point, I don't think it came out of Bell Labs, but somebody called 
Unix a castrated Multix. Oh no. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and so you can see why treacherous pun like you know, right. <laughs> way to describe it. Yeah, careful what you get into when you yeah, try and uh, feed off of other words. Yeah, that's that oh, that's the beauty of language too. I want to talk about one of the things you mentioned in the book and that is one of the driving factors to what made Unix so great, possibly, and, I, and I'm posing this to you, is that there were a lot of constraints, technological constraints, like memory constraints, as I understand it, you know, various hardware constraints. And you say in the book that you're not sure it would have been as great a system if you hadn't had those external constraints imposed on you. Do I have that right? And can you explain that? Uh, yeah, I think that that's certainly uh, correct. And I think it's a reasonable interpretation, at least. The issue is it's, it's hard for people today to realize just how incredibly limited computers were at the time when the very first Unix system were being done. And this would be roughly 1969 is sort of the first one that Ken Thompson did, that they had by today's standards, infinitesimal amounts of memory. Uh, these were machines that might have a sort of 10, 12, 15,000 bytes. Okay. Ick, that's just incredible. Exactly. Um, they had very, very limited external storage, half a megabyte of external storage. And so we're talking today of things that are literally millions, if not billions, of more of that kind of thing. And so what you had was machines that had almost no uh, primary memory, almost no secondary storage, and they didn't run very fast either. And so that meant that you couldn't take on all of the problems of mankind with the system. It forced, I think, a kind of natural economy of means and mechanisms. You did not do fancy things. You tried to find the simplest thing that could possibly work. And one way to do that was to, of course, write simple, straightforward code. And the other was to try and find generalizations, a, a, a unifying mechanism that would serve for a variety of different purposes within the, um, within the system and then also for uh, application software that ran on the system. And so that combination of real constraints, you just didn't have any, any extra to play with. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think in part good taste, a major part, very, very good taste on the part of the people doing the programming, in particular Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, uh, who um, had a taste for very uh, spare, lean, straightforward kinds of things rather than more complicated. I'm sure there's some architectural metaphors here, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not good enough. Right. In, yeah. In, right. But these uh -huh. were not Baroque or Rococo or whatever. They were much more straightforward. So it's a combination forced on you by <clears throat> the limited resources that were available, but encouraged and built on by people whose taste was very clean. And there's that word again, very straightforward, good taste, good judgment in what to build. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm, I'm thinking of the parallels to writing. Okay, can you give us a sense of the importance of Unix, what the impact has been in the computing world? Well, it's sort of a flip answer is it changed the world. I mean, almost everything that people use in computing these days that doesn't come from Microsoft is, has some Unix cast to it. And even within Microsoft, there are more and more things that are influenced by the Unix view of things, ideas that came 
through Unix. Not everything in Unix was original with Unix, of course. There were a lot of good ideas in Multics that were uh, inherited or pushed along or enhanced or simplified in Unix. But today, I think an enormous number of the things that we just use every day have that influence that comes directly or through a clear sort of evolutionary chain from what's going on Unix. And so I'll uh, just try and clarify for myself here. So Unix is an operating system, but there were a lot of applications that were written for Unix, right? And and so what like if I look inside my computer, what am I going to be looking at that stems from Unix? So depends what your computer is, but when I'm sitting here with a uh, MacBook Air mm-hmm. uh, made by Apple, and inside that in the software sense, is an operating system. And the operating system is kind of like the traffic cop that keeps all of the pieces of uh, the computational computations going on in your computer working together. So it, it manages the resources. The computer by itself doesn't do much, but it's a computing resource. And so if you want to run programs, you want to run whatever is, uh, well, we're using Zoom for audio. That's a program, an application that's running under the control of the operating system. But at the same time, there's other things going on. You've probably got a mail reader sitting in the background and a browser and who knows what else. Um, Yeah, in my computer, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on there. And so the operating system is the software that basically manages all of that. It makes sure that things show up on the screen in the right place. When you click on something, it comes to the top. And then when you push something else, that replaces it on the top. It manages the communication with the outside world, the networking, for example, that makes it possible for us to talk across the country very conveniently. It manages the secondary storage so that later on, when you've got the recording of what we talked about, you'll be able to come back with it, you'll be able to edit it, and so on. All of that is managed by the operating system. So it's kind of the core piece of the software environment that people have. And that's programs like Mac OS, if you're a Mac user, um, mm-hmm. it is Windows in its various forms, but today Windows 10 primarily, which is the evolution of many decades of operating systems work at Microsoft. And then Linux, which is a operating system that started as a basically a project by a undergraduate student at uh, University of Helsinki in Finland, Linus Torvalds, oh. who decided that Unix was kind of a nice operating system, but it required a license or something. And so he wrote his own version of it using the external description of it. And that has become, this was done in, I think, 1991. And that over the subsequent 30 years has become in some ways the dominant operating system for the the infrastructure that we all use. Uh, An awful, awful lot of what drives the internet runs on Linux systems. Some of your favorite Big software operations like Google and Facebook and Netflix and so on are using Linux systems underneath to make things go. Oddly, both of my cars, which come from two different manufacturers, use Linux in their entertainment systems. Oh, interesting. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of strange, but there it is. Yeah. Um, huh. And, and so Linux is, actually, this is something we haven't mentioned, but Linux is an example of an open source project, which means that all of the code that makes it go is available for anybody to use more or less as they see fit. 
with the only proviso that if you use it, well, you have to be prepared to pass it on to somebody else as well. Um, and Linux, to bring it back to Dennis Ritchie, um, is written in C. Right. Linux is kind of a common word in my household because my husband is a big fan. And so he runs a lot of his computers on Linux. But it isn't a household word particularly, but it, it's amazing that it is so everywhere and, and people don't talk about it very much. Or maybe that's just my impression. I think your impression is right. I mean, if you talk to most people about computer if they think of standalone computer at all, it's probably something like a laptop. Mm-hmm. Depending on your environment, I would say in, let's call it the real world, the majority of people have computers that, that run Windows from Microsoft, that I think Microsoft has the large fraction of the personal computer marketplace. Um, and the next most likely thing is that they're running a Mac, it's running Mac OS which underneath it has an awful lot of Unix DNA. It's not the whole story, but it's a big chunk of it. Mm. And then I would say a relatively small handful, comparatively small, and that might include people like your husband who's doing software development work, are running Linux because it's a probably a better software development environment than either Windows or Mac for general purpose software development. Uh uh-huh. Not exclusively. Yes, I think you've just explained exactly why he uses that. Okay, let's let's talk about C, which is really uh, Dennis Ritchie's, one of his uh, legacies. Um, it's still widely used, which is amazing to me when I look at advertisements for positions. I still see C called for a lot. And then, of course, C++ is also very popular. Now, I read somewhere that you've allegedly said it was the language that you would take with you if you went to a desert island. And so tell me what makes it so great. Yeah, I, I think it at the time, and this C dates from about 1973-ish, maybe give or take a bit. Wow. At the time, it hit a sweet spot of expressiveness and efficiency. It was a really, really natural language. It made it very easy for programmers to say what they wanted to say in a very clear and direct fashion. And at the same time, it was highly efficient. It was a, a really, really good match for the capabilities of computers of the time. Computers of the time were simpler. They were getting better, obviously, but they were still kind of wimpy in terms <laughs> of their memory capacity and speed and lots of other things. And so C hit that nice point right in the middle. And I think it's still very good for that kind of thing. But as computers have gotten faster and as memory has gotten more capacious, we can afford to spend more computing resources on making it easier for programmers to get their job done. So you can get the computer to do more of the dog work for you to just handle things. But at a price, things will maybe not be quite as fast as they would have been if you had written them in C itself. And so in environments where some combination of memory efficiency or speed matters, mm. C will still be used. So the entertainment system in my car, it really doesn't matter how fast it runs, right? <laughs> you know, I push a button and the next track on that um, music comes up. But a lot of things like the engine control in your car or the braking or other systems like that are also written in C. Oh. I don't know how much there is of that, but my brother sent me something the other day that said, well, a typical car now has 150 million lines of code. 
And most of that will be in C. Is that right? Wow. Or perhaps C++, depending. C++, as you observe, is a, it's a direct descendant of C, a language uh, done by Bjarne Stroustrup, also at Bell Labs, a language that gives you more control as you write bigger programs. It sort of helps you keep the pieces of the program from interfering with each other, more expressive in some ways, and comparably efficient. There's lots of other languages in that sort of C family as well. Java, which was done by Sun Microsystems, mm -hmm. very clearly in that C family. Uh, JavaScript, mm -hmm. which is at this point maybe the most widely used language anywhere because it's on every single web page that you look at. Right. Very directly derived from C. And then scattered other languages. Uh, Go, which was done at Google about 10 years ago by, among other people, Ken Thompson, is also looks very much like C. So C still used itself very widely and then has this family tree of other things that have come from it that address different aspects of the programming process that take advantage in various ways of the evolution of technology, but they're all part of that family tree. And so you could argue, I suppose, in some weird sense that this is kind of like Latin and Greek. At the beginning, we had kind of right. Latin or something like that. And then we have all these romance languages that come from it, mm -hmm. where you can see the heritage. But people still, I guess, use Latin. We've had a bit of Latin in our conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. My husband was coaching me a little bit about C. Obviously, he's a big fan. And so he's uh, given me this little script here. He's trying to explain to me here what the leap was from assembly language. And he says it tells one type of computer exactly what to do. And then uh, he says, but the C language tells any computer uh, what to do, but not how to do it. Would you agree with that description? And is that really what makes C so brilliant? The description is, is absolutely fine. I would say it this way, I think. In earliest times, and this goes back to the 1950s, let's say, people wrote programs at a level which was beneath languages like C. They were written in what's today called assembly language. It was called assembly language then too, actually. But a very low level language in which you had to spell out every single operation you wanted to do very, very precisely in terms of the specific instructions of the repertoire of a particular kind of computer. So in one computer, if you wanted to add two numbers, you might have to say, grab one number and put it someplace, grab the second number, put it someplace else. Now add those two places and put it in a third location in the memory. So it was very detailed, very specific to a particular kind of computer architecture. Okay. So now what we have is the evolution, and this started in the very late 50s of what are called higher level languages or high level languages. And what they did, and this is back to what your husband said, they moved it up a level so that you could say, hey, add these two numbers and put them someplace. You sort it out. And the computer sorts it out. A program translates that single way of saying something like, you know, X equals Y plus Z, translates it into whatever the sequence of instructions is for a particular computer architecture. But if you come along with a different computer architecture, you can translate it into the different instructions for that other architecture, achieves the same effect. You only had to write the program once in your high-level language, 
and then you could translate it into running on different computers underneath, regardless of their of their instruction repertoire. And that's the big, big step of high-level languages. That happened in the very late 50s with languages like Fortran. Uh-huh. Uh, COBOL. COBOL, my era. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I wrote COBOL too. <laughs> and about 10 years later, languages like C, which were not focused on specific domains so much, like Fortran is formula translation. It's meant for engineering, scientific problems. COBOL is common business-oriented language. It's meant for business computations. C was primarily meant for system programming applications, like writing an operating system or writing this translator or all these other things that you do. And it sort of took over the world because it was much more expressive across a broad range of programming applications and also had the advantage of 10 years of hindsight. How, what, what does that mean? Well, Fortran came along in 1958, and it was kind of a big deal and hard to do, and so on. By 1968, people understood languages better, mm. clearer what to do, and computers had become more powerful. And so the combination meant that it was you could build languages that were, in some sense, a better match to what people wanted to do over a broader range of application areas. But sort of hinting at something you said, you know, C is still around, Fortran is still around, COBOL is still around, languages don't die. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> they remain alive and often well uh, for very, very long periods of time. Yeah, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm always intrigued by moments of insight. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how Dennis realized that, that you could make this leap and create something like C. You mentioned having 10 years of retrospect, which, you know, obviously that would go into it. But, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about how, you, how he had that aha moment. I think it's not so much an aha moment as a, actually a natural evolution because there was a lot of experience at that point. Multics, which started in about 1964 or 5, something like that, one of the things that they did in Multics was to aim from the beginning to write it in a high-level language. Not any of the ones we've talked about, but they were going to write it in a high-level language. In other words, they were not going to write it in an assembly language. So there's an idea uh -huh. that was in the air, more than in the air, and Dennis had absolute firsthand experience with the benefits of having a good high-level language for writing things like an operating system. The, the Multics experience, and it's in the Unix memoir book in probably more detail than most people would care about, but there was an evolution of languages there from a particular language that they thought they would start with, with PL1, and that was too complicated. So there was a simplified version called EPL, and that was too mm. complicated. And so there was a BCPL, and that was actually pretty reasonable. And that's the genesis of a language that Ken Thompson wrote called B. Right. And then that became C when Dennis evolved it. So you can see it's not, not an aha moment, but rather a sequence of, of things that are in the air, but taking good stuff out of that sequence uh, of making this a bunch of technical choices that were well thought out and worked out, at least in hindsight, very well. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Some of it's just work, right? I mean, that's, oh, yes. <laughs> that's what my podcast is about. Yeah. So some of it is just, yeah, putting in the work. I was inspired to learn more about Dennis when I saw a reference to him and realized that he had passed away in 2011. And I hadn't uh, been aware of that and started realizing how important he was, not just because his name is on all these books in my bookcases, so I'll just quote here, Paul Ceruzzi, who's a computer historian, said, Ritchie was under the radar. His name was not a household name at all. But if you had a microscope and could look in a computer, you'd see his work everywhere inside. You've explained that to us. What are the other things that you would point to as to his importance to the computing world? You know, this reminds me of Christopher Wren, Simonumentum Requeris Circumspice. If you seek my monument, look about you. Ah, uh huh. And that's on the floor of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And so it, it's a big stretch, and the metaphor is stretched too, but all of the computing stuff that we use is influenced by Dennis's work on C and Unix. And so, in that sense, pretty much um, everything in some way is based on his work. You're using Mac OS X, OS, they call it now, I guess. There's a large component of Unix in its DNA. It's written in some combination of C++ and Objective-C, both of which are C derivative. You're probably searching with Google. Their infrastructure is Linux. A lot of their search tools are C++. If you're using the Chrome browser, that's a C++ program. I already mentioned it. Oh. So it's all around. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. At the time Dennis died, there were obituaries, um, and some of them were technical, and some of them came from... Actually, unexpected places, I think. There's, um, there was one that I remember still to some extent. Somebody at The Economist, oh. they have a, one of their columns is called Babbage or something like that. Or oh, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and whoever wrote that obviously knew his programming. And Dennis died a, within a week or so of Steve Jobs. And the observation that this obituary for Dennis made was that Steve Jobs was very, very, very widely known in the outside world but arguably Dennis made more contributions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my sense as well. And we've been talking about legacy here in the podcast. So I've been thinking about that a lot because of the importance of work to our lives. And for many of us, it really is our work that will endure afterwards. For some, obviously, it's our children or, or other things. But for a lot of us, it's work. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about whether or not that forms a motivation to people or is thinking about something like that just a distraction? I suspect in the short run, it is a distraction in a way. If you think about, oh, what have I done today that's going to affect the world when I'm dead? Mm -hmm. And it's clear that there's a class of people who don't care even remotely about their legacies. Think about the politicians who will remain nameless. <laughs> but... It seems to me at the same time, if you take a longer view and if you get a, do get a chance to think about what you're doing, and if you have options, not everybody has options all the time, but yeah, maybe think about the potential effect of what you're doing on the world around you, whether large or small, and ask whether that's kind of the one thing that you would like inscribed on your headstone or whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You want to write a program that's going to sell more advertising? It's useful. It helps pay the rent. Is that your legacy? 
hard to say. So, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not like one size fits all either. And it's, it's obviously easy to sound excessively pompous and moralistic. So I'll try and avoid that. But mm. yeah, I meant it from more of a practical standpoint, right? I, I didn't mean to be, yes, too highfalutin here, <laughs> as we would say in Indiana. But yeah, just thinking about that. And, and as you're talking, I'm reminded, I think there is sort of a, a principle that I've heard about from Native Americans, that they try and make decisions in terms of what this will mean you know, several generations down the line, right? That it's not so much their legacy as it is really taking kind of a long-term perspective on something. And maybe that's a more like a less highfalutin way of thinking about it, but but trying to put things in a longer-term perspective. Yeah. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Are there any uh, stories about Richie that you'd like to share? You know, there's one story that, I, I, there wasn't room for it in the book and it was too complicated and so on, but it turns out that there was a prank that was played at the labs on Arno Penzias, who was at the time the vice president of research. Arno had a Nobel prize, uh, which he got for co-discovering the background radiation in the universe and, you know, very, very sharp guy. And so Dennis and Rob Pike put together a very, very elaborate prank, which was basically, and this is probably in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, which would kind of convince Arno about how wonderful the state of machine recognition of speech was. And <laughs> it wasn't really as advanced, but, but through a sequence of accidents, Rob Pike and Dennis Ritchie knew Penn and Teller. Oh, and so they got Penn Teller to run this thing and force, because those guys are real magicians and understand how to make audiences do things, to force Arno through a sequence of really, really weird actions that would uh, eventually lead him to believe that the computer was recognizing everything he said. <laughs> this was all uh, videoed. Um, oh. <laughs> very carefully set up. And the video is still online. And so if you look for Lab Scam, L-A-B-S-C-A-M, and find the one that's Bell Labs in the 80s, uh, it's sort of a 10, 15-minute thing that was put together uh, largely by Dennis and Rob Pike. And, you know, random other things. I, I get a credit as a gaffer because I, you know, rolled some tape across a wire somewhere or something like that. Uh-huh. But it, it's absolutely, it's really funny. And uh, that's an example of a dentist story that, you know, most people would never hear of. I think his his siblings, when they wrote after his death, when they wrote about him after their death, they talked about his sense of humor. It does seem like a lot of you at Bell Labs had a pretty uh, sophisticated sense of humor. I'm glad you mentioned that again. I saw a reference to it in the book yesterday, but I didn't go look at the video. But now I'm inspired to to go check that out. Yeah, so another one that was quite funny from the book was this whole notion of grep. Oh, yeah. The grep story is mostly Ken Thompson, but the, the idea is sort of typical of a lot of things that went on. Grep is a program that just looks for patterns in text. So you want to find all of the places where Jennifer appears in a long sequence of email messages. So grep is the program that does that. And so there's nothing much more to it than that. Um, but it was written um, by Ken Thompson, 
And I had always thought that Ken wrote it on demand, that somebody said, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we could search for patterns of text? And Ken went home that night and came back the next morning with a working version of a program that we still use today. I probably haven't used it more than a dozen times already today. Sheesh. But in fact, and perhaps this is the funny part of the story, it turns out that Ken had actually written it before because he thought it'd be nice to look for patterns of text. Oh, mm-hmm. And, but hadn't revealed it to anybody because he was worried about people thinking he was hogging the environment or something like that. And hmm. then somebody asked him, Doug Mackerel, I think, asked him, wouldn't it be nice if we had a program for finding patterns in text? And, and Ken said, uh, let me think about it overnight. And then he came in the next morning with and revealed uh-huh. this thing that he had written long before. So it's that kind of thing of you know, interesting, sometimes entertaining, and often with a very serious technical thing underneath it was fairly representative. Right. Yes. These these kind of side projects that may have an application or may not. So I want to talk about Bell Labs here a bit. So we in the business world whisper about Bell Labs and and about the productivity and creativity that came out of that space. And so we're always listening to consultants tell us about stories about Bell Labs and what the magic that there must have been in those hallways. And you talk actually quite a bit in the book, which I thought was really uh, helpful to us to understand the things that might lead to creating that kind of team and that kind of environment. And you do talk about a combination of things, but what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to create a high performing team like that? Yeah, it's hard to avoid sounding platitudinous, but I really want to hire the best people you can. I mean, you really, really want people who are good and it's hard to find them sometimes. Mm. Um, you want to put them in an environment that's rich in things that you want dealt with. So the, the neat thing about the labs when I was there, this would be in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s era, was that there were an awful lot. Computing was at that point comparatively new, and there were a lot, a lot of interesting things to work on. And Bell Labs covered a very, very broad spectrum of technology. And so there was always something that was interesting to do that was also potentially useful. And so hire these good people, put them in an environment where there's lots of interesting things to do, and then get out of the way. Mm. Don't micromanage them. Don't ask them every quarter what they've done. Don't have a stand-up every morning. All these things that just drive you nuts in the modern environment. Get out of the way. Encourage collaboration. So it's nice that people work with each other, but often the very best people work best with maybe one other person. Mm. Private offices, there's a hot button issue, I'm sure. Yep. Bell Labs had private offices, and that was a big help, but the mechanisms and the culture and everything else encouraged you to keep your door open. So you're in your office, but the door was open, and that meant that if somebody had an interesting question or needed help with something, the culture was, yeah, just go and hang out in somebody's doorway and say, hey, I got a question, an idea, or whatever. I think the other thing, another thing, is that the reward mechanism at Bell Labs favored people who worked across organizational boundaries because they were better known. And in this sort of build up a picture of who does what for the organization, people who are known by more in the evaluation chain, the management chain, were more likely to be well thought of. And so that just it worked that way. It was really important to have management that understood what was going on 
We did not have managers who were financial experts. We had managers who were technical experts. Mm -hmm. And that was true all the way up. I mean, the vice president of research, and Appendius was absolutely first-rate physicist. So that really helped. They knew what they were doing. And although there was, you can't avoid bureaucracy, right? Mm, to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but big surprise. You can't avoid it, but a good manager is like an umbrella, okay? It keeps that stuff off the people below who are doing the work. Right. I think another thing that matters a lot is stability in some sense. There was at the, the labs, and this is a, a very different world today, obviously, but the AT&T was funded basically by tax on telephone calls. And so the funding for Bell Labs was extremely stable and predictable. And that meant that you could emphasize long-term work. And so people could work on something without worrying about it for certainly years. And that was perfectly okay. That wouldn't work in a startup today, obviously, but it was very effective there. Funding was stable and you didn't have to worry about it. So there were a lot of things like that where taking a long view but building it on really, really good people, I think, paid off. Yeah, it's really intriguing to me, the more I've studied management, how we, especially now, seem to write a lot of books or propose a lot of ideas that are just so complicated. And I think if you could just read the Unix book and pick out those five things, it just would solve a lot of problems. Of course, a lot of things have changed now with COVID-19 with so many people working from home. But I'm hopeful that it also gives us a chance to kind of rethink some of these ideas that I think are pretty dumb. Like this whole idea of the open office, you know, the people that I work with just complain up and down about how it's not conducive to concentration and productivity. And you think, well, of course it wouldn't be. You know, it, it's it's obviously super noisy, you know. Yeah, I don't know what to – I mean, clearly um, the open office thing is, is an economic consideration, mm -hmm. and I would say it's a short-term economic consideration. But if you can pack 10 people into the space that might have been two people before, well, you're saving a factor of whatever on your uh, – building rental. And so that could be serious money. I think in the long run, it's counterproductive. In the short run, maybe it's okay, but I'm just as happy not to do that. Right. Yeah. I think I'm going to start proposing your book about Unix as the new um, management guide, because there's a photograph in there of this little common room that you talked about, and there's coffee there, which I think is really important. And, and also, you know, of course, it was a different era, and so everything looks a little different, but it just looks like fun, right? The way you describe how people are going to walk in and out of that room and, you know, I'm sure joke around because of people's sense of humor, but, but also trade ideas, you know, this, this idea of a space like that for collaboration just seems so key to me. I think it is. And, and you know, I don't want to uh, denigrate modern companies. I spend time at Google, for example, and Google has micro kitchens all over the place. Mm. And in their best manifestation, they are exactly that kind of thing. You come in, you grab coffee, and you see somebody you haven't seen for a bit, and you talk about what you're doing or where you're going or who knows. And good things mm -hmm. come out of that interaction. And I think the more of that that you can do is fine. But then the question is, having got your coffee and left the micro kitchen, if you go back to a bullpen where you've got people two feet away from you on either side, it's hard to concentrate, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it, it's not just that, right? It isn't just the office configuration, although I like to fuss about that, as my <laughs> listeners know. But the other things you mentioned, particularly the thing about stability of the team and stability of funding, I'm always struck by the statistics that baseball teams that stay together are the the more winning of teams. And it just seems to me that that's you know, if you're going to accept that piece of information, why wouldn't you apply that to the management world? And yet we see all the time this impatience. We've always got to turn teams over and, you know, we just don't allow teams to have a chance to be productive before we're disrupting them. At least that was my experience in the corporate world. So I, I wish that we would get back to some of these, some of these principles, because I think they would work. Yeah, I, I would think so, too. I, I don't tend to get asked for management advice all that much, so I guess yeah, I probably won't have any effect on it. Oh, that's funny, yeah, because that, that, of course, from my perspective, that I really uh, gravitated to those very much so. The other thing I would say is that my father was a high-energy uh, physicist in academia at Indiana University, but he was working on very large projects, collaborations uh, with people really around the globe in the 60s. And so a lot of the environment that you describe is actually quite familiar to me, these ideas that you would have these areas where people would go get coffee, but then they would go back to their offices, but then they're also working on very, very large, complicated projects where communication is key. So anyway, for me, it was just a trip down nostalgia lane to see how groups of people worked together back then. It did strike me as I was reading about your work that all of you were extremely hardworking, that work was a major part of your lives. And so I was curious if you had any thoughts, particularly in today's environment, which seems so different, how you stayed motivated and what your advice would be for people today in the age of, I don't know, kind of fast moving Silicon Valley, startups, instant millionaires, you know, kind of all that context. Yeah. I, well, warning, more cliches and platitudes ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, students ask me this kind of question from time to time. And I, I give them the same warning. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, you want to do something you enjoy. If, it, if it's fun to get up in the morning and get started on it, that's good. If you hate the idea of another day of it, and you have to do it anyway, that's not so good. Um, so that's the obvious cliche. I think another one perhaps more useful is it's really nice if you can do these kinds of things with people you like. Mm -hmm. uh, that if you get along with the people you work with. And that may mean socialization outside of work, or it may not. Uh, but but the feeling that, gee, you know, I like the people I hang out with. And I think on average, most people do. It's nice also if the people you work with are better than you are, mm -hmm. so that your game keeps improving. And that was certainly the case for me at the labs. I mean, these people were astonishingly good. And so I had to keep going all the time to feel that I was pulling my own weight and that I belong there in some sense. Now, I guess everybody suffers from the imposter syndrome at some point or another, but, mm -hmm. uh, but you really do want to work with people who will help you improve in some way or other. It's important to try new things. Don't get into ruts, I guess. Uh, Dick Hamming, who is another person I worked with a lot at the labs, used to say, 
contrary to what Nancy Reagan said in ancient times, just say yes. Uh huh. And so if somebody offers you something and you haven't thought about it, well, think, well, maybe that's a good idea. Let me try it and see what happens. And of course, you have to have a life outside work. And that's different for different people. You know, obvious things like family or hobbies or just something you do that isn't work um, and be able to shut down. And I think there are a lot of environments today where it's hard to shut down. Mm. You know, I have a cell phone, but I haven't turned it on since yesterday. And I probably won't turn it on for another three or four days, something like that. I, and there are other people who, who, as far as I can tell, their cell phones are surgically attached to their bodies. And this is just, you know, you don't want to be on call all the time. You really like the idea to be able to shut down and do something else and have fun with it. So that's kind of the, the cliches or platitudes aspect. For me, the thing that kept me motivated and most going, certainly in the early days of the Unix experience at the labs, was that it was incredible fun. And part of the fun was I would write a program. I have an idea for something and I would write a program and somebody else would use it. And they would say, gee, that worked for me. That was neat. And I'd say, wow, that's a good feeling. And of course they'd say, ah, but it needs this feature or did you know about this bug or whatever? And say, ah, but that was okay. And so that motivation of doing something that somebody else cares about, I think is very important for a lot of people. Nobody cares about what you're doing and why you're bothering. And it's hard to stay motivated if you feel as though you're working in isolation. Yeah, 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 that's right. And that's an interesting contrast to this idea of legacy because it really is more of the here and now and the immediate feedback. But to me, that you know, it's the joy of teamwork and collaboration. That's fun. I, I think to a lot of us, we're yeah, a lot yeah. of people. That's really fun. Well, Brian, thank you so much uh, for your time today. And I know as I say this, uh, many of my listeners are going to be saying, no, you haven't asked him about this. <laughs> so I really want to uh, thank you and, and uh, express my appreciation for your time. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? Any resources you'd like to refer them to or anything you'd like to share? Well, I hate to flog my own books, but okay, consider the books flogged. Um, go read them. That's wonderful. Thank you for mentioning them. And, and Jennifer, just thank you for the conversation. It's been a great deal of fun for me, and I hope your listeners get something out of it as well. Yeah, I hope so, do. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.